Welcome to this episode of Turdy for Turdy. Make sure to let us know how we're doing. You can either email us at tftpod2018 at gmail.com. I know that might get confusing now. and Or you can hit us up on the Twitter at turdy for turdy. Let's do this. We are back with another turdy for turdy. We've been out for some time. We had the holidays, and then I got sick right after the holidays and lost my voice for a minute. And you really can't do the podcast without the guy that does the story. So we had to take some time off. I guess Maher well, could have brought in random guests, which would have been very entertaining. Well, but that didn't I- happen. I was, you know, the one I, you know, I didn't, you didn't really go for this idea, but I was saying, what if I read the story and then made all my own jokes just to myself? Like, maybe play you, though, and play myself, so I'm just sitting in my, you know, I'm sitting here talking, like, and be like, hey, this is Andrew talking about the podcast. Oh, I don't, Maher doesn't agree to that, because that's how I imagine how I sound. You know what, let's do that for this one. I'll be back in an hour, and you read the story to yourself. Ooh, I mean, it'll just make the voices feel like they have some company. The voices have meaning. Hey, the funny thing is on that intro, uh, when you say the email now, I realized that when I made that email, I was like, yeah, that'll be a 2019 Andrew problem. And 2019's here now, and I realized the problem with that email. Well, I mean, it just lets us know when when we started. And maybe, you know, it means it's good. We made it through, you know, a year, even if it's only not actually been a whole year but you know we made it into a new fiscal year good point it's, it's a good point or are we technically in our original fiscal year since when we started yeah we're in quarter three of our fiscal year of when we started all things football that morphed into turdy for turdy oh yeah and even count that one in there yeah, we've we've already we've been around for what like six months. We've already rebranded once. Hey, you know. Hey, if, rebranding's fun. You know what they if say: Time if Warner you aren't rebranding, it, you can. aren't trying. <laughs> anyway, like um, when last time when we left the last time that was weird. The way I said last time very loony tunes yeah, for a minute. Yeah, it did. <laughs> That's all, folks. <laughs> when we left you uh, last time, we were talking, and we talked about Jerry Jones, and uh, that was kind of like a, there was a lot of details in that in that story. There was a lot of moving pieces. There was a lot of Jerry to cover, so that's why it was two parts. Uh, so I thought for this episode, to get us started in this new year, the first full year of Turdy for Turdy, I thought we'd start with something... Kind of, kind of simple. Back to the basic. Just a simple tale of two NFL teams and their fan bases. Are you ready? I'm. I. You know. You got my curiosity now, there, cat. So, uh, the NFL is kind of like the. It's not like the Premier League, but it's the most popular league, similar to what the Premier League is in Great Britain. The unfortunate thing is. Most teams don't have fans that are crazy as soccer hooligans. Like, and and I actually thought about morphing this into a soccer hooligan episode, but I tabled that for later. 
Um, that would just turn into a true crime story. Yeah, yeah, point. that's basically what was happening when I was researching. I was like, yeah, I'm going to save this for later when I find out a better way. But in the spirit of that, we are going to talk about two of my favorite fan bases in the whole NFL. And no, it's not the Hoggets from the Redskins, because I know that's what most people would have figured I'm talking about, but that's that's not it. The what? Uh, the Hoggets from the the Redskins. Do you remember them from the? I thought that was just 2000s? what they called the the Lady Redskins fans. Oh, ouch! Burn. <laughs> you remember them though, right? With the pig noses. I I I, I don't remember the Hoggets. Oh my god! So to make a short story long, when Joe Gibbs was the uh, the head coach of the Redskins, the offensive line was called the Hogs. And uh, for a while, there was like this group of four or five men that would show up to every single game wearing a dress and hog noses, and they called themselves the Hogettes. That's actually pretty funny, but um, that does sound like more of a fan base specific knowledge and not a, you know, everybody knows kind of deal. Exactly. And that's why we're not covering them for this episode. As much as I wanted to talk about them, I narrowed it down to the two groups that you will know. And one of them is not Boltman in San Diego, because I also did a little side research on Boltman and him selling all his equipment, and that's funny, but it's not what this is about either. Yeah, that uh, that costume uh, really turned into something that looked legit, but it did not start out legit. No, no. If this was somehow, if this was somehow a visual podcast, which I think they just call it a TV show, we could do the history of Boltman because we could show all the different incarnations of it because it's pretty great. I think if you wanted like a good example of a visual podcast, this is YouTube. Yeah, I think you're right. Actually, yeah, we'll just do the history of Boltman on YouTube coming out in 2020. It's a documentary. <laughs> the life of Boltman. The, the life and times of the Boltman. All right, so <laughs> let's get to the actual story. I've been rambling a lot this episode. I'm sorry. It's, I'm excited to be back. So um, the first, our first part of this story takes us to Ohio in 1984. I wonder what this could be about. The top song was Careless Whisper by Wham. You thought I forgot about the top song since we've been gone. No, I, no, I, I think you're making it up because I know you're a Wham fan. So, you know, I think you're just saying it, it's Wham. George Michael was so much better when he got rid of the other guy. Oh, what? The guy that was in his mouth? <laughs> And the top movie, or what we call the best picture, it was uh, Amadeus. Rock me, Amadeus. Amadeus. Wait, is that what that's from? Or no, this was actually the movie about the life of Amadeus. That was a rock song. Okay, I was about Amadeus. to say, I was like, <laughs> no, that's what I was no, like. I know no that's connection. a song. Did they put that? Is that song for the movie? I don't know. Amadeus. I'm, I always thought that song was just like Amadeus. Amadeus. Amadeus, rock me, Amadeus. I thought it was just his name, like over and over again, with rock me thrown in every once in a while. Is that not what it is? I don't know, man. All right, so the Browns have been a middling franchise for the better part of a decade. Gone were the '60s and '70s, where the Browns had won several league championships before there ever was a Super Bowl. The team wasn't necessarily bad at that time, but they weren't good either. They weren't as bad as they are in their current. Uh, incarnation, but they weren't great. They're like an eight and eight team, basically. 
One of the vocal leaders of the defense during uh, that season and in the era of the 80s was a corner named Hanford Dixon. Uh, He was drafted by the Browns in 1981. Uh, He actually wrote a book, and in the book he says one of the first things he noticed about Cleveland is that their fan base was obsessive and, as he described it, just sheer nuts. Yeah, I mean, well, those people probably all, like, killed themselves, so they're probably not still around. uh, Well, they probably did when they left. And then when they came back, they started coming out of the grave, and then they saw how bad they were, and they just walked back to the cemetery and went back in. I always forget about that um, them leaving thing. Yeah, that's kind of a big part of Brown's history. Um, so Hanford Dixon, like he was—I mean, he's a pretty good player. He was a pretty decent player. He was very popular in Cleveland, but I don't think he would have ever imagined what we're about to talk about next would have created one of the most iconic traditions of the Browns. Was it throwing hams at Fords? Actually, no. That's pretty cool, though. Is that a Browns tradition that I didn't know about? Do you just throw hams No, at I was Fords? just saying, you know, his his name was, what was it, Hamford? Hanford. Hanford. Like H-A-N-ford. Oh. Well, they can throw hands at Fords. Or Hans, because if you t- make it Han Ford, Han Ford. Is Franz throw Hans at the Fords? Franz is throwing Hans. We're going to pop them up with Hans. So, during a 1984 regular season game, Dixon gave a speech to pump up his teammates. And this is what he said. He said, think of the quarterback like he's a cat and you're a dog. The dog always needs to catch the cat. As Dixon retreated to a spot on the field, he continued yelling back at the huddle, he's the cat, you're the dog. Don't let him get away. And then to really drive home the analogy as if he hadn't mentioned the dog-cat thing enough, he started to bark at everybody on the team. So there was a crazy corner just out there in his, in his spot covering his receiver and looking back at his defense and barking because he said that the quarterback was a cat and their dogs. Are you following so far? Yeah, um, did this guy happen to go on later in his, you know, career after he retired and be the coach at um, Coastal Carolina? I don't think so. You know what I'm talking yeah, about, do, right? The yeah. Little kitty cats. Little kitty cats. <laughs> uh, so after uh, after the play was over, he li- when they lined up again, Dixon let out some more reminder barks, and then it became a tradition. After a while, like what I want to know is, were people getting into this as it was happening, or were his players just like, "What? What did this guy do? Did this guy like go do some like coke in the bathroom?" It happens. It was the eighties. It happens like every great movement. I remember in a psychology class, we watched this video about people dancing. The first person that stands up and spontaneously dances is a madman, right? Most of the time, if you see a single guy dancing, you think he's crazy. He's not the most important person of starting a movement, though. The most important person in starting any movement is the second person to join. Because the second person is the one that reinforces the behavior of the first one, and when people see that the behavior has been reinforced, they're going to join. So, he looked like a crazy person during the game, but one of the other defensive backs picked up on it, liked it, started barking too, and then it became like a team thing. Oh, you know, they really came together like, you know, a pack. Like a pack. 
So this ended up being kind of a routine for the rest of the season. Um, it wasn't really like widely known by anybody, though. It was just kind of a team thing. It was small. Uh, but that would change a little bit. So at the next season's training camp, Dixon's motivational bark would forever become a part of Brown's history. During, pe- during practice, uh, fans that were at training camp began to hear his barking and imitate it. It didn't take long for public practices at training camp to be filled with the sounds of barks. Wow. Dixon and his teammate Frank Minifield, the guy I was talking about a minute ago, decided to run with it. So when they got to the first preseason, when they got they wanted to do something special about the bark for the preseason game. So to go off script a little bit here, basically they you know, they were shocked when they heard all these fans barking back at them because of what they had been doing. And they're like, well, this is, this is, this is something, this is how we like, you know, put our names in Brown's history. So we need to, we need to at least run with this for as long as we can get our 15 minutes of fame. So the East end of the stadium at Brown's municipal stadium uh, or at Cleveland Municipal Stadium, not Browns Municipal Stadium, was is all bleachers. Like it was the poor man's section. So what's well, the Browns? Is anybody there really technically rich? I mean, yes, probably. But what I was trying to yeah. say is they're all poor because they support the Browns. I was trying to make some kind of deep statement. It didn't work. So anyway, that section of the stadium is like the very. It was the blue collar, the blue collar section. And so, um, before the first preseason game, Dixon and Minifield went over to the East End and hung up a banner with the name Dog Pound on it. Wow, that's, so that's how that started? Exactly. How did it take that long for that to start, considering they've been dogs that whole time? Well, they haven't, and we'll get to that later. You're about to learn some new stuff about the Browns you didn't know. Were the Browns, like, brown people before? Like, I'm confused. Whoa, like, whoa, whoa, problematic. <laughs> problematic. Well, no, they're just people who are brown. No, like, do you actually, you know the reason why they're named the Browns, right? Um, I thought it was just because they were shitty. Well, it fits, but no. Actually, the first, uh, their first owner, coach, and the guy that started the team's name was Paul Brown, and he named the team after his last name. So they were the Cleveland Browns. Okay. Well, I just always thought they were dogs. And, and there's a reason I, for that. I felt like it didn't have to make sense that they were dogs and they were the Browns. I mean, what were they before, though? Like, what were they before the, the dogs? They've, well, the only logos they've ever had that I've seen, and if we have somebody that's like a super Browns fan that's not Derek, uh, nobody else will get that. But if we, have, a fake ass yeah, if we have a super Browns fan, maybe they can tell us more. But the only logos I've ever seen is they had the little elf man from the 60s. He looked like a Keebler elf in brown and orange. And then it was just the helmet logo. And then the dog doesn't actually come around till later. I don't want to give too much information on that because you're going to be annoyed when you hear where the dog actually came from. When I try to picture that, like, their, their human logo, because I do remember that, I always think of the Celtics logo. I don't know if it's, it's cuz of the standing it's the but... posture. Yeah. It's that's exactly why it's cuz they stand very similarly. So the dog pound has been a part of Brown's history ever since. Um and while Dixon Minifield might have created na- the name, it's the fans that ended up growing the dog pound into what it is today. 
So back in the 80s when the pound was first found, oh, I hate that sentence. It had a little bit of a... <laughs> Easy there, Dr. Seuss. <laughs> it had a little bit of a Wild West vibe to it. Back then, security was not too worried about what people brought in. So in my research, I found an article from someone that had season tickets back in the 80s in the dog pound. And basically this article had all this great stuff that happened at games that he was at. And so let's talk about it a little bit. Man, I I just want to like kind of go on a side tangent. Like pre 9-11, like life was awesome. You could do whatever you wanted places. Now you literally get like a finger up the bum just trying to go, you know, in in any large area. Yeah, it's... This is not the first time we've like done a story like this because I remember the uh, the Cowboys Redskins rivalry. We talked about how they were able to to sneak in chickens and stuff, and so like I keep hearing, I keep doing research on these things that fans used to do back in the day. It just blows my mind how wild places used to be able to get. I mean, I'm pretty sure you could track that all the way up until 2001. Yeah, that's when like stuff got super real, like super like heavy duty. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. Uh, so, but let's talk about the article. The article was written by um, that guy on Bleacher Report that does blogs. His name, the art, the blog is called Six Point Stance, and he just calls himself Six Point. So I would say his real name if he didn't go by like a uh, username. But anyway, uh, he would say one of the things that would happen almost every game religiously is that him and his buddies would walk in with two uh, two-liter soda bottles full of Beck's Dark. So just walk in, because it looked like Coke when you walked in. But it was just two liters of beer. That, I mean, who's really winning that, though? They're drinking Beck's Dark, like... I mean, free beer at a football game is free beer. Are you going to complain about that? Well, they're not. It's not free. My thing is, are they, like, how are they getting the beer in these? And is it a little bit stale because they had to open up, like, 30 beers? Oh, I'm sure it's a little stale. Use a funnel to pour them in there. And then, like, how the hell are they sneaking in? So they were allowed to bring soda in? Yeah, yeah. Because you're not sneaking a two-liter unless, you know, you no, got the, a the, this, pretty that's big That's the thing crevasse. that he keeps saying is security would see them walking in with this stuff, and they just didn't really care at that time. Uh, fans would smoke, uh in the in the stands, I'm not talking about like pot. They would just sit there and smoke cigarettes and stuff. Yeah, I'm sure players still were like smoking on the sideline. So, yeah, it was against the rules, but security was worried about like big problems, like fighting or fighting or. These sound fighting. like not nationwide things. This is, sounds like Cleveland yeah, being yeah, Cleveland. Yeah, it's Cleveland <laughs> being Cleveland. I mean, basically, they're like worried about. They've, they're like, we got to worry about the fans killing each other because that's always a problem here. So we're not going to worry about a little smoke. Uh, one of the more creative smuggling things that I found was um, each week the team brought in this doghouse that was uh, team colored and they would put it on a hill in front of the dog pen. There was like a little grassy hill that you could reach over and place this uh, this house on in the dog pound and it so they had this brown and brown and orange dog house that they brought in uh the dog house would be brought in by six men every single game and placed on the hill and it never missed a game but eventually security caught on after several years by the way it's not like this is several weeks several years uh is what it took them to catch on about something don't let these 
Don't let these guys sneak in. It's ten men carrying a, a <laughs> exactly a giant house. <laughs> so yeah, one of the security guards. So what happened is one of the security guards finally noticed that it took six men to bring the doghouse in, but only two guys would carry it out every week for several years. So, so wait, what, 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 like, what were they doing? Were they bringing it in in pieces, or like, I don't, I don't. No, it would get take. It. They would bring it in like on a, uh, like on a. A wooden, you know, like a on a piece of wood, mm-hmm. and they would bring it in and just place it on this hill. But it would take six men to lift it and carry it into the stadium. But it only took two men to carry it out. Oh, so there, you know, there's a little bit of uh, there's a little something, little something floor, in there. Yeah, hidden floor panels. So when security finally went and checked this doghouse out, they found that it had a, it was actually a like a kegerator. It had a keg in there with a with all the stuff you need and it had the tap and everything. So it turned out that the guys that were bringing this, um, were, were having beer lines in their section and at their row. And that's why people would always be standing in the middle of sections during the games. They were waiting in line for beer from the doghouse keg in the dog pound. That's pretty great. Actually. I felt like that's something you know you would catch on pretty quick, but that's pretty amazing. No, the fact that they hey, got away for this more than one week is what's so surprising to me. What they should, what they should have really done is had the same amount of people carry it out with them, even if like they weren't carrying, like it, it didn't weigh that. You know, I know people aren't that smart, but different, obviously different it worked time, for years. Time. Yeah. So. um it wasn't just beer and drinking, though. The away players didn't really like going near that section either. Well, yeah, because everybody was drunk off, you know, a keg of beer. Um, well, that and they used to get stuff thrown at them. And the projectile... Hopefully not a keg. <laughs> no, but the projectile of choice for Cleveland Browns fans in the dog pounds during the 80s were milk bones. Okay, that that actually is slightly better than what I thought you were gonna say. So, but milk bones would hurt. It was even encouraged at one point by uh, Kevin Byrne, who was one of their PR representatives. He said the East End has a decidedly milk bone feel. He said that in an interview one time. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Yeah, hint, hint, nudge, wink, nudge. wink. Throw some milk bones at the players' feet. So if your team was unlucky enough to be pushed back near your own goal line and your goal line happened to be in the East End, you were more likely going to be pelted by dog treats. While they're playing? Yes, while they're playing. Okay, that's that's like, I just felt like the rest would step in at that point. Um, that wasn't the only thing that was thrown. Obviously, it gets worse, kind of similar to Philadelphia. Um, if it was cold, players would be hit with ice balls, uh, D-cell batteries, and basically anything anybody could get their hands on. Man, I can't imagine how much it would hurt to get hit by a D-cell battery. Why like, is this such a it, common it, thing, though? Like, every I, story I, that you hear about sports, like, people throwing stuff on the field at sporting events, why are batteries always involved? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe they were cheaper back then, but that's just expensive, man. I'd rather throw rocks. Are you saving all your dead batteries for the day you go to a game just to chunk them at people? Maybe. I mean, that's just a lot of work. What happens if they explode? Also, like... I don't know. Uh, in 1989, John Elway was hit with a barrage of milk bones and batteries. 
It got so bad that officials switched ends of the field and assessed a 15-yard unsportsmanlike conduct penalty on the Browns. This turned out to be a lucky break for the Browns, though, because when they switched sides of the field, they now had the win to their backs. When they got the ball back, all they needed was a field goal to win. And Matt Barr got the opportunity to kick the field goal, and it barely went in over the crossbar. So the Browns <laughs> won the game because their fans pelted John Elway with milk bones. Wow. Yeah, it's that, pretty uh, great. I, that's a... I wonder if they had to do that now, what would happen? Oh, it'd go to if, review if six like, times, and they'd call the commissioner, and he would walk down on the field and suspend the players for the fans throwing stuff. Yeah, I don't know. It would, it would be it would be weird, um, especially if they ended up winning, like because they clearly got advantage because of that. Uh, could you imagine being on the Broncos though? How pissed you would be about that? Yeah, I mean, I could definitely, as soon as you said that, me not having a stake in any team was thinking, like, I'd be so pissed if I was that team. Jesus. Another time, Cowboys player Trevor Burbage scored in a game that was already locked up in Cleveland's favor. He then went and taunted the dog pound. Unfortunately for him, the pound didn't forget. And later in that game, which was two weeks after Thanksgiving, Burbage was nailed uh, on the helmet with half of an eaten turkey drumstick. Wow, that's someone smuggled in a whole freaking turkey. Someone either smuggled in a whole turkey or leftover turkey from Thanksgiving, which was two weeks ago, with the intent of throwing it at somebody, and it just happened so to be the guy that they threw rotten turkey at a man. Yep. I would laugh if it was just John Madden, like drunk in the booth or something. I don't ah, know Trevor, take this. <laughs> well, you see here. You got the turkey leg, and it flies at this angle, and it hits the guy. I can't do a John Madden Yeah, I can't either. I want to. Like, in my head, I'm doing it, but I know I shouldn't do it out loud. So, the real dog pound lasted up until Cleveland's final game at the Municipal Stadium in 1995. Fans were not very happy when ownership announced the team was heading to Baltimore, for obvious reasons, like they were losing their team. And... So when they showed up at that last game, fans brought with them wrenches and crowbars. They removed the seats and tossed them onto the field. Some even took pieces of the section home as a remembrance for the team that they loved deeply. And most fans believed that the pound was dead forever. Wow. I, um, so let's back up real that's, quick. That's hardcore, man. And also, like, who the hell is working there that did just let them do that? Yeah, it was 1995, and they're walking in with wrenches and crowbars. Yeah, um, that's kind of problematic. Um, yeah, could you, I mean, but I, I want to say simpler time, but it wasn't that long. Well, I guess it is what if long you're ago work, now. What, what if you're working and, you know, you're a cop on duty there? Like, because they probably still had cops there, not as many as they do now. But you just see people walking. I mean, does it get to a point where, like, uh, it's too much. We can't do anything about it. I guess. What if you're a fan of the opposing team and that's the one game you go to in Cleveland and you walk in and sit down and you look around and all of the dog pound has wrenches and crowbars around you? Yeah. I'm no, going that, home that at that concerning. point. I, yeah, I would. I, hell, I'd be concerned if I was there and it was my own team. I'd be like, why do they all have crowbars? <laughs> that's usually not good. But that's not the, the, the whole story of the pound. 
Because when the Browns returned in 1999, the dog pound was revived. That was a, you should not do that anymore. Okay, I promise I won't do that again. Mm, that was worse. The first time sounded a little fabulous. This time sounded like you were trying too hard. Ouch. Anyway, in the plans of First Energy Stadium, which was the stadium that was going to be built for the 1999 Browns, uh, bleachers were placed in the East End Zone. And this would be decided, this was just, they decided to make this the new home of the pound. The problem with this pound was that it was more of a gimmick than the grassroots movement that it was originally. So essentially, the pound gets corporate. Cue the always sunny music. Yeah, the pound goes corporate. Like I'm, I'm confused. Is that that mean they have like logoed milk bones they throw at people, and they can only throw Duracell batteries? So listen to this: an official logo was trademarked, and the official dog pound gear was created. Remember when you said you thought the logo for the Browns was the dog logo? That's the dog pound logo that was only created wow. when the team was brought back. So it's basically know- just a corporate money grab. Because I know that they actually have, um, I've seen it on TV. The you know, like every every team has it with their section. They have the dog pound or the the black hole, but that's just all of Oakland, really. Um, who else? Someone else has one. Those are the two main but, ones. Yeah. <laughs> so it ever since it came back it hasn't really been the same tickets uh, actually became some of the most important or most expensive in the stadium because everybody wanted to sit in the pound now it wasn't like the blue collar group it actually ended up being a wealthier group that moved into the dog pound just because it was like a novelty but that kind of defeats the purpose of why an area like that was created yeah, exactly cuz they're like instead of being raucous and crazy they're going to be like oh i do say this is an you know, these end zones. I do declare I've got the vapors from watching my favorite quarterback, Tim Couch. My problem with sitting in the end zone is I can't see anything from the side. Oh, Jeff I Garcia. Really do miss my... He is an all <laughs> pro quarterback. <laughs> I miss my sweet, but these are very delectable to see how the, the peasants used to Is live. that my fair Carrie, Kelly Holcomb out there? We've had three quarterbacks in this one game. <laughs> I was I, Derek I was, Anderson. Is that you? <laughs> Man, they they gone through quarterbacks like heroin addicts go through needles. Actually, that's a lie because those people probably reuse their needles a lot more than than uh, they did quarterbacks. That's true. At least they always got a fresh new quarterback to toss in. Except that time they paid Jake DeLome millions of dollars to come play there for like six games. <laughs> Man. Anyway, that's that's off topic. So to create a more sterile and appropriate environment, <laughs> stadium rules Ster- were now enforced. Sterile? Yeah. Did you say sterile? Sterile, sterile? sterile, like a more clean environment. Stadium rules were now enforced and security was tight in the area. It was tight, bruh. Tight. Tight like a dog. I don't know. So tight like a toyga. So gone uh, were the days of smuggling in full kegs and dog houses. But that's not where we're going to stop our dog pound story because in a late game, into a late seasoned game in 2001, the dog pound came back in full force. 
Oh, boy. The Browns were playing the Jaguars and driving towards the pound for what would be the winning score of the game. Oh, spoiler alert. Browns receiver Quincy Morgan caught a pass from Tim Couch that was a first down on fourth and one. The team hurried to the line and spiked the ball. After the spike, the ref blew his whistle and said that the Morgan catch was under review. Wait, I didn't think you could review exactly. a play after. Okay. So, since the NFL has brought in replay, one of the rules, obviously, is what you just said. If the ball snapped, you can't go review the previous play. Uh, the ki- the review was upheld, so it was the catch was was watched by the ref, and the call was reversed, giving the Jaguars the ball back with all them needing to do to, was kneel to win the game. As the, Ooh, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd be throwing my batteries. I'd be throwing car batteries at this point. So as the Jaguars took the field to kneel out the clock, the pound began to hur- mil- hurl Miller Lite's new safe plastic bottles and anything else that wasn't nailed down at officials and players. Wait, are you, are you telling me before they were throwing glass bottles? No, I mean, they would throw like their Or that cups they had glass bottles at games? No, I mean, usually they had cups, but don't you remember that? That year that Miller Lite really aggressively advertised plastic bottles that they were going to have at, like, all these live events and stuff? A couple of them. I think Bud Light did it, too, and then then everybody went to the the metal ones, I guess, because, you know, plastic and global warming and Al Gore probably, like, you know, threatened to murder someone if if they didn't. Yes, so anyway, Miller Lite got some of its best advertising at the Browns game when all of their bottles ended up onto the field. (laughs) Uh, the ref terry mccauley who's uh, still a very famous ref i lost my spot i I was like that was an interesting pause sorry i lost my spot it it sounded more like a uh, he's still a very famous ref like and then you paused for effect like it was not a good reason he was famous so uh he called the game and sent everyone to the locker room unhappy with the results commissioner paul tagliabue called and overrode the ref's decision and force the players to come back out onto the field. The Jaguars had to go out there and kneel the, uh, kneel the ball in just piles of debris as bottles continued to still fly on them. Now known as Bottlegate, it was the one time remnant of the old pound showing up at the reincarnated Browns new stadium. Plastic beer bottles were banned from future Browns games after. I feel like they should like pretty much like ban all throwable objects at these games. Like, you know, just give them like I don't know paper cups of beer or something, so that when they tried to throw them, they would you know they would just kind of flap around in the wind. So I actually remember that game. It's hard to believe that was like 18 years ago now. I I what year was that? 2001. I don't really remember that. So while the new pound isn't what the original one was, it's still filled with very passionate fans on a whole. Most of them are more affluent and less blue-collar than the original um, Dog Pound fans were at the Muni, but they are still an extremely fiery group. It's one of the reasons why everybody seems to want the Browns to succeed. Um, And I mean that in the sense that everybody that's a football fan, like a part of them always wants to see the Browns have some sort of success. And it's always, you. every time you hear anybody talking about that, they always say it's because of the fans and how emotional they are and how much they love the team and how they stuck with them. But that imagery comes into our head because people picture the dog pound. Man, 
it, you got to really admire a team's fan base that can still get upset over a loss when they had how many like unwin or only like two win seasons in a row. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the best season they had in what like ten years or something. Stupid. Yeah, and it was still and they finished seven, eight, and one. But man, they easily. I mean, yeah, that without that tie though, they could have finished. Like, I don't know about you, but speaking for myself, even I have a soft spot for the Browns. Like, if it comes down to it, I'm going to root against them if they're playing the Redskins, but it's hard to root against them otherwise. Yeah, no, I like that they're doing good. I I also like that they immediately did so much better after getting rid of Hugh Jackson. Oh, God, yeah. Cause it, cause it was, it, it was like, why did they? It makes you real, like wonder, like, why the hell did they stick with this guy for two seasons when they get rid of him, and all the people he wasn't playing all of a sudden get a play and they kick ass, you know, or at least they're a solid team. Yeah, I'm still mad they didn't hire Greg Williams as their head coach, but whatever. Hey, let's see what you know. Think of all the puns they can do with Freddie Kitchens, though. The bakers in the kitchens. All right, what is it? It's um, every kitchen, every baker needs a kitchen, is what they were the the saying they're going with. A, well, you know, I thought they would do like Hell's Kitchen or you know stuff like that. Well, if you trademark it like they trademarked the dog pound, maybe you can put it on t-shirts. Ooh, or I could just not trademark it and make like illegal t-shirts. <clears throat> That's always fun. I've always wanted to make my way into the uh, illegal sports t-shirt game and just sell them on the street. So, as I said, we're going to be talking about two different fan bases. That rounds out the Cleveland story. So, can you guess where we're going next? Um, Washington. No, I told you I wouldn't do that. Oakland. We're going to Oakland. Let's talk about how the black hole came to be. I thought that was just, you know, the black hole was, uh, what's his name? Their Al Davis's wallet. <laughs> Ooh, bah, bah, bah. I don't know what that was. And that's, that's where, uh, that's where they're, that's where, uh, what's his name has to, John Gruden has to store all his money he gets because <laughs> it's too much for any normal person to be able to handle. Yeah, I imagine that he just got paid with like comical bags of money with money signs drawn on him. I you know I feel like if any coach would negotiate some ridiculous form of payment like John Gruden would be like I want to be paying that them their that damn their bitcoins. You can pay me in doubloons. <laughs> like I need Spanish doubloons, not any of these makeup just gold fortune doubloons. I need authentic from the bottom of the ocean Spanish doubloons. Yeah, you ever seen that game Uncharted with the little gold coins? I want to be paying that. Actually, just pay me in Mario coins. <laughs> what if they just gave him like a giant like treasure chest full of like the chocolate, like crappy chocolate coins? He'd probably coach for it, to be honest. <laughs> so when you think of the Oakland Raiders, well, like, when I think of the Oakland Raiders uh, and, and their fans, I kind of imagine like members from Kiss, and they kind of look like a like their fan base kind of looks like a mix of the band kiss and mutant football league. So, I mean, they do have the most ridiculous costumes I've ever seen at games. I think they look like if kiss traveled back in time to the Viking era and took over like a village and then those people like descended and that's like the look they would come out with is half kiss makeup, half Viking armor. I'll, I'll allow that. 
however, that wasn't always the case. That's actually a relatively new thing. So let's talk about where this that actually came from. So during the 70s and 80s, players like Ted Hendricks, the assassin Jack Tatum, and quarterback Ken Stabler helped create a bad boy image for the Raiders. They were the outlaws of the NFLs. Of the NFL. I don't know why I said the NFLs with it is. <laughs> that persona would carry over with the team even when they moved to Los Angeles in 1982. Now, we're going to get into some kind of cultural, some, some cultural history here because the Raiders weren't that popular of a team until they moved to Los Angeles. Who'd have thunk? So when they moved, to, when they moved, uh, it helped diversify the Raiders fan base and especially grew the number of minority fans that they had. Wait, how did they not have minority fans in Oakland? Well, I'm, it was a different time, and you have to understand going to NFL games is an expensive thing. So a lot of their fan base in the '70s and '80s were, you know, white people that lived in San Francisco or. Uh, you know, the wealthier crowd. And so it wasn't, it's not that they didn't have minority fans, but they didn't become, um, it didn't become like a, the logo didn't become a cultural like icon until they moved to Los Angeles. And so when they moved to Los Angeles and in the night or the late eighties, when groups like NWA came on and a lot of the West coast gangster rap uh, groups and the rappers, uh, they would wear a lot of Oakland Raiders stuff. And so that's when the Raiders started becoming popular with not just the uh, fans in Oakland or San Francisco, but they started becoming more popular all over the, the world. So wow. it got to the, I didn't even think about that. It got to the point where in the nineties, the Raiders logo had transcended football. Like it became a fashion. The logo became like a fashion icon. What is it with L.A. and all their stuff, you know, getting to where it's, it's used more as fashion than anything else? I mean, New York has it, too, but, like, you see people wearing Lakers stuff, and they you could ask them about basketball, and they look at you look like you, look at you funny, like, what the hell are you talking about? This is well, just it's a because shirt, you know? L.A. is such a, I mean, it's such a popular city all around the world. It's where American movies are made. It's where music is. Like, everybody knows L.A., and so if you think of cool American city and you think of Los Angeles, the Raiders logo is cool. Like when I think their of cool color Americans. scheme is cool. Everything at the black and silver, all of that just screams badass. So people loved it. It is a pretty cool like color scheme. I will say that and their logo is even like, you know, not bad. So Raider popularity spread throughout the country and internationally. And when the, would you say the world got Raider Rash? I would, I would say the world got Raider Rash. So when the Raiders moved back to Oakland in the 1990, uh, for the 1994 season, they came back to a larger, more diverse fan base that was extremely excited to have them back and much more devoted to the team than they were before. Like The Oakland Raiders before were popular, but they weren't like this when they moved back to Oakland the city embraced them completely well yeah because they don't want like them holding you know holding them hostage or they want like leaving I mean you got to have a good relationship otherwise them you know move to Vegas and then the city will sue and then they won't know where they're going to play games at the next year yeah we, that'd be a tragedy if that happened yeah I, don't, I can't imagine that ever happening no that just seems a little ridiculous so one of the things that um 
came into existence because they moved back to Oakland. Oakland was the black hole. So the black hole is a relatively new thing starting in about ni- between 1994 and 1996. I like I like when you say like relatively new thing, you're acknowledging that it's like 20 plus years old, right? Well, I'm getting older, so it's still kind of like newish to me. Like 1995 doesn't seem that long ago. It does, but you think about it, it was still, you know, I understand your point, years but ago. I'm not accepting it. I mean, when we talk about it, I'm thinking about it like it wasn't that long ago, but I know in my head that it was a long time ago. So Rob Rivera, who would eventually become the president of the Black Hole, watched every game with his friends um, and, and at his house. Did you say Ron? Did you say Ron Rivera? Yeah, Rob, Rob, not Ron. Oh, uh, was that his dad? No. Was that Riverboat's no. dad? Uh, he watched every game with his friends from 400 miles away. And even though the team was that far away, the group remained passionate and didn't miss any game. Even if it was on the East Coast, they would all show up early at uh, Rob's house and hang out to watch the game. Wait, so I'm confused. I thought you made it sound like they went to the game, but they all drove 400 miles no, to no, his house no, to they, watch No, no, no. They all TV? watched it from their TVs from 400 miles away is what I was trying to say. No. It, it mean, wasn't back. What I'm saying is the team wasn't back in Oakland yet, but they remained Raiders fans. Oh, in Oakland? In Oakland, yes. Okay. So when the group, when the team, when it was announced that the team was going back to Oakland, Rob and his friends got an idea. They were inspired by the Cleveland Dog Pound, and they swore that if the team did come back home, they would create a section to rival the wild fans in Cleveland. Uh, Rob Rivera would say in an article or in an interview, this Dog Pound thing that is fucking phenomenal, man. And our fans are better than that. We are bigger, we are better, and we are better. So if the team ever comes back to Oakland, why don't we do something like the Dog Pound? So, I um, in my head, I always imagined Oakland being the starter of that. Nope. Just because I feel like Oakland's always been. No, these fan, but... the fan groups and these like fan sections seem to based on what i've researched seem to be a relatively new thing from the 80s like there weren't these super passionate themed fan groups before that i like you say relatively new thing but it's like still 40 the years 80s old, and yeah. the, i know but but when you're saying that though that's when that's the time when football became a lot more commercialized than what it was before so of course the fan bases get a lot more hardcore because it's easier to watch it and stuff like that okay that's fair as opposed to before you, you literally had to go to games to watch them or you know maybe they were on there was only a couple networks so we're getting to the point where there was a lot more games available and you could watch a lot more and you are you're absolutely correct i guess what my problem with this when i was researching is that i just assumed like things like the dog pound and stuff had been around since like the 60s yeah i uh i actually thought both of those were a lot older than they ended up being but <laughs> so the group held meetings and got more members to decide the logistics of what their new fan group was going to be they voted on the name Black Hole, which beat out other options like the Rat's Nest. Terrible, terrible <laughs> name. The, the Rat's, wow. Well, what if it was just instead of featuring, like, Oakland fans, it just had people with, like, you know, rat tails? <laughs> yeah, oh, everybody's got the rat tail haircuts. Yeah. You can't get in here unless you have a you rat got tail. got your rat tail. Like, oh, man, I just got a haircut. I got a clip-on rat tail. 
<laughs> Get out of here, <laughs> Jimmy. Looking like freaking Obi Wan from the Phantom Menace. <laughs> if you're not gonna grow it, you can't be one of us. <laughs> Cue like a whole section going <laughs> one of us. One of one us. Rat tail. Rat tail. Uh, they also wanted to find a way to draw attention to themselves and make as many people in the crowd as angry as possible. The gang decided that they would get front row seats and stand for the whole entire game. Okay, so so they're being assholes. They're just off. being assholes. Yeah, but that forces everybody else to stand. Exactly. So they're just being assholes. So when the season opened on the new era of Oakland Raiders football, Rivera and nineteen of his friends bought tickets in the first row of section one hundred and five. They brought signs and apparel that read "The Black Hole" in big block lettering. Some of them painted their faces, but most of the extravagant costumes and makeup that you see today wouldn't be part of the black hole until a little bit later. They also brought in a full-size dummy to represent the opposing team's quarterback, which they would toss around and abuse for the whole game. Oh, that's, you know, that's not threatening at all. Like, hey, is that a um, giant, dang it, I forget what that's called. Um, You know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it was like a, like a crashed like one of those cpr dummies that they were just tossing around as long as they don't light it on fire or something but i you know if someone like drew my face or like had a jersey on a doll that they were just mutilating and abusing i would be a little concerned (laughs) it wasn't even kickoff yet rivera recalls (laughs) row two is like hey man sit the fuck down and row three was screaming sit the fuck down Throwing peanuts, water balls, and bottles, and everything that you can imagine. We did this for the first two games. We even locked arms and said, One sit down, we all have got to sit down. One stands up, we all stand up. And we did it, man. We did it. Man, I would hate those people. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm all for standing, but, you know, it just depends on where you're at. Like, if they're trying to make a section and people aren't in that section knowing beforehand, like, oh, crap, we have to be wild and stand the whole time, they're going to be like, I want to sit, watch the game, drink a beer, you know, stare at the cheerleaders, that kind of stuff. They're not thinking, like, oh, man, I got to stand the whole time. God, just complete dicks. Like, that would be so yeah, well, annoying. Yeah. I mean, now that I'm older, when I was in college, like if I was in the college section or in the student section, I was standing the whole time. And if you sit down, you're a chump. But, you know, at an NFL game, it's a little more laid back to where if I'm just I think I can just go and sit and watch the game and enjoy it. Not have to like, I don't know. To me, I want to watch the game. I don't want to like be at the point where people are celebrating so hard they're not even watching the game like waves that pisses me off just sit the f down man i would tolerate it but it would get annoying yeah i i just want to watch the game man you don't need to like sometimes i feel like people try too hard to be fans to where they're not even there for the game they're just there to like stroke their own ego by game three the fans that hated the black hole moved out of section 105 and the people that liked the mosh pit atmosphere that was being created started to move in. As the group grew, they also became wilder. When we played the Kansas City Chiefs, we grabbed Neil Smith's face mask and ripped it off his head, says Rivera. That's, um, that's aggressive. That's a, yeah, that's that almost seems kind of like borderline, you know. Assault? assault. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> When we play, hey, you know this thing that's strapped to your head? Like I'm just gonna rip on it real, real hard. <laughs> Stay there one second while I take this off your face. Uh, when we played Ray Lewis, 
we had uh, we had him hooked up in a pig tie, and I'm uh, he's meaning the dummy, which he says here, and we are swinging him around the dummy. Which timeout? He corrected himself in this interview, which is pretty funny. I'm going to start that over. When we played Ray Lewis, we had him hooked up in a pig tie, and we are swinging him around the dummy and yelling "murderer, murderer." <laughs> I was like, man, they, they formed themselves a modern day lynch mob in the middle of the <laughs> exactly. stadium. They're <laughs> like, oh, he just came in. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I need to correct myself. We're talking about the dummy. We didn't literally hogtie Ray Lewis and scream murderer at him. Well, so what, what a couple of me and my buddies did is we, we tied a rope around him and we dragged him behind our car, <laughs> the dummy. The dummy. <laughs> uh, the dummy had become a big part of the game day experience. We beat the fuck out of this dummy, and when we threw it up, the whole stadium knew it was time to rock. Man, what if they put, like, a fake knife in that? Also, what year was this? 90, like, 96. Damn, how old was Ray Lewis? 96, Has 97. Of- well, I, I don't think he's, like, going in order, so that could have been in the, like, 2000s. Oh, okay. Um, he's just telling thinking, stories like- about what they did. I was like, he just retired a couple years ago. He he didn't play for twenty something year for twenty years. Uh, losses were not handled very well in the black hole. Go figure. Oh oh yeah, you know I can't imagine these people seem obviously like they're you know they're self control freaks. <laughs> uh, Rivera also has a story about a Monday night loss to the Chiefs in 1997. Quarterback Elvis Grabach completed a pass with three seconds left that defeated Oakland by one point. We walk out to our tailgate, and all the Raiders are leaving, heads down. It was a fucking funeral. But there was one car with Desmond Howard, and that motherfucker was jamming the beat in his SUV and having a good time, Rivera continues. I will never forget it, dude. Hundreds of motherfuckers started rocking his SUV, just rocking it. And as they are rocking it, I remember hearing dun 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 bottles flying like bombs. When cops intervened, Howard's car was almost sideways and toppling over. They were able to save him and his car, but Raider Nation's never really been a fan of him since. Wow, that um, that's intense. <laughs> also, where what was this interview on? Like, he's just dropping f bombs like crazy. Yeah, yeah, this will definitely need the explicit warning just from this guy's comments. Well, but I, like when you said interview, I thought it was like for a newspaper, like you know, a magazine. This sounds like he was like a freaking penthouse or something. Like, dear penthouse, today we almost toppled over a man's car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll I'll look up for that. I'll, we'll have it in the we'll have it in the uh, the description the the website. This guy sounds. By the way, this guy, you reading his words. Everything that's happened so far makes a hundred percent sense. Exactly. So I feel like I know this guy just from the like paragraph of information you've read from him. So Oakland games have had plenty of headline grabbing storylines over the years, such as stabbings, riots, and assaults. But um, Chris Soteropoulos, the it's Soteropoulos, the Raiders' director of stadium operations, says things have began to improve drastically. The improve, these improvements were brought on by new safety rules and zero-tolerance policies. Most of the trouble usually comes from people that come to games looking for a wild time and not the famous costume-wearing members of the black hole. 
You still don't want to be a fan of the opposing team while you sit in, in the black hole. Black hole members live by the rule. Fuck with the opposing fans until they request a police escort and then fuck with the police escort until they ask for a police escort. <laughs> that's legit legitimately some somebody has said that about the black hole at some time and that's become like part of their motto that um i can almost kind of relate to that a little bit but are you talking that, that's pretty right funny now? yeah uh the nfl has changed many policies to limit the craziness of groups like the black hole and the dog pound But the black hole is still not Disney World. The author of uh, one of the other sources that we'll have in the description went to a game against the Packers relatively recently within the last couple of years. He snuck in and sat in the black hole. Fans were yelling a string of profanities at players and refs that walked by. In his story, he also talks about a fan he met named Crash with a K who told him that he was looking for a safe place to do his drugs. (laughs) <laughs> well, what happened if he didn't do his drugs? Was he going to crash? Probably, definitely K? probably with a K. He then proceeded to pull out a pipe for a hit and offered it up to the author. Uh, he declined, stating that he was sick and didn't want to contaminate Crash. So Crash responded with a classic quote, Look around, we are all contaminated. <laughs> Also, why would you say the word? Like, did he say contaminated? No, people don't talk. Yes, like in the article like, he said, I, he said I didn't. Say. I told him I didn't want to contaminate him. This guy probably thought he was blending in, and everybody around him was like, "Look at this fucking <laughs> yeah. guy! Look at this like, guy! <laughs> Look at this nerd!" <laughs> he's running around on a freaking cardigan with the shoulder pa- or with the elbow <laughs> patches on it, thinking he's blending in with the Raider Nation. Screw this guy. <laughs> so many of the original Black Hole members are not fans of the idea that the Raiders. Fans are low lives and thugs. Well, sounds. I don't think you've said anything that tells me that they're not at this point. And that persona has grown, maybe fairly, maybe unfairly, because of the popularity of the Raiders uh, within the rap community. Now, to connect the low life thug image to the rap community is wrong, but as you just said from the stories that you can find on the internet about the black hole, eh, there's some truth to it. It also doesn't help that there are other stories that I haven't told, like fans playing tackle football on the pavement on the pavement of the tailgates, and a lot of fist fighting. One time, a Steelers fan—I can believe—I can believe that stuff. Though. One time, a Steelers fan was beaten unconscious, and that led to the next game uh, beer being banned at the stadium for the next game. Uh, that seems a little aggressive. Like, why would you jump all the way to that level? Because <laughs> um, apparently somebody that whoever runs the Coliseum in Oakland like decided they had to be Oakland's dad for a day. I feel like that would make things worse. Like you let people have fun and just you know maybe add a little more security. If you completely cut off something, then people will find another way to do it that's not as good. There's other stories around, like the Raider Bandit who committed 24 bank robberies to fund his football tickets. Or convicted murderer and rapist Robert Charles Comer's last words at his execution being, Go Raiders! And that's not helped Wait, public can perception. We, can, can we please talk about this Raiders bandit? Um, because I want, I really want to know how this guy committed 24 bank robberies in order to pay for his tickets. Like, how he made it that far. Because this guy doesn't sound like he would make it past, like, maybe one. 
apparently he did. I actually probably should have gone more into that now that I'm reading it out loud. But yeah, the Raider Bay. Because that that you, you know you threw out this like big tidbit of information, then you just like. You poop the bed. Yeah, that, that we'll save that for another day. One day we'll come back to the Raiders and talk about the Raider Bandit. But yeah, apparently he committed 24 bank robberies to fund his football hobby. How expensive were his tickets? <laughs> I just, I really like, or was he like robbing, you know, it was like the super, like they only had like a couple hundred dollars at each one. You're asking the you're asking the tough questions right now. <laughs> I feel like after bank robbery, like maybe three, you've paid for your season tickets. So I don't know if you need to do twenty one more. But hey, more power to him. I mean, this thing's only got to be about a like you know couple thousand dollars, right? Yeah, like, and you should get that within a bank robbery or three. I mean, it shouldn't be twenty four. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just confused. In 2011, the Black Hole even hired a PR firm to help try to spin media coverage to focusing on the group's acts of charity. Like Robin Banks. Yeah, like Robin Banks. <laughs> With the Raiders moving to Vegas, we might have seen the end of the Black Hole. And that's unfortunate because, bad press or not, the Black Hole is what a lot of people connect with the Raiders. When you think Raiders, you think of psychopaths wearing kiss makeup and screaming at football games. Well, you know, there might just be a different type because there'll be the people who end up, you know, losing all their money and then they're just falling to a, in Vegas, so they fall into a black hole of despair. Good point. The black hole, they probably are going to put slot machines in the black hole in Vegas. I'm curious, like, they should totally have, like, a slot machines in, like, a club area or something there. That would be hilarious. Like, I don't think they did anything in the, the arena they have there other than make it look like you know, you're going to see, you're going to the Excalibur or something, but. Does the Golden Knights that would be interesting. slot machines in it? Their airport does. I mean, I assumed everything had slot machines in it there. Hold on, we're going to look that up real quick. Oh, MGM, as of November 28th, 2018, MGM is eyeing putting sports betting kiosk at Vegas Golden Knights Arena. Is sports, yeah, I guess sports betting is the, it's about the only place in the country it is. No, it's in like a couple of states now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think they have. That could be I don't problematic think they have, like, if slot machines on site. That could be problematic if you had, you know, live betting in a, in an actual stadium. What if they just had like players like Pete Rose it up and like sneak up there? Damn, this is like a really wearing the, the hat and sunglasses. The stadium's really nice, by the way. The T-Mobile Arena, it's cool. Oh, the, where the Knights yeah. play? Of course, it is. All modern stadiums are are like really cool looking. I mean, just the amount of amenities, the stuff. It makes you realize if you go to a new stadium and then go to an old stadium, you realize how crappy all that is because they're they're so old. Yeah, you look at. Uh, I'm trying to think of. Like in San Antonio, if you go to the Alamo Dome, that place feels super old already. Well, that's because the Alamo Dome, they never really did anything to it because they built it trying to get something they didn't get, and then it just kind of gets used as a multi-purpose kind of thing. Yeah. Because it's not big enough to host a lot of stuff. Like, you can't have big football games there because, you know, it's kind of a crappy stadium. 
you could put concerts in there, but then it's kind of crappy for concerts too. And... It's kind of crappy for everything, but yeah. Anyway, that's the story of the two, to me, the two most like well-known fan groups in the United States. And what I found interesting about this and the reason that I focused the whole episode on it is like I said earlier, I thought all this stuff existed well before it actually happened, but most of this is only, you know, 20, 30 years old. So. Who would have thunk? Who knew? I didn't. Uh, so, maybe uh, next time we have a shorter one that's like 45 minutes long, we'll do a 10-minute mini-episode about the Raider Bandit, because I feel like now we both want to know more about that. I, I mean, I'm about to Google some of it, so unless you give me a promise that we're going to actually talk about it, then I won't Google it. Yeah, I'll toss it in. So if you listen to us and you want to hear more about the Raider Bandit, wait till next week. It'll get thrown in at the end. I'm excited. Oh, that was a two. I went too high now on that. We, now we've created a two-parter about the black hole on accident. Black hole sun. So nah, nah, nah. it's good to be back. We'll be back on our regular scheduled weekly uh, podcast from now on. Sorry for that weird little break that we had of like three weeks, but we'll be back. So don't you worry. You have. Are we, are we ending now? I mean, do you want to end? Ah, probably. My butt's I mean, we asleep. could we could sit here and just banter for another hour. I like banter. You know, that's that's why they call me the pink banter. I don't know. That was bad. All right. Well, we'll see you next week with another story, another sports-related story, and a small mini uh, part about the Raider Bandit. So I'll see you all next week. Baher, take us out. Bye.